0: Don't just live life, make life boom.
1: Hi everybody, it's August, I'm DJ for another episode of the Mic Drop Club today. I am super, super stoked. This one has been a long time in the making. I have the fabulous Rachel Murphy in the house. She's an entrepreneur a real rock house of inspiration and motivation. She's a business mentor, public speaker, health executive. I could tell you more plaudits and more accolades that she's she's done and will accomplish in the future. So please, with no further ado, welcome Rachel Murphy to the Mic Drop Club. Rachel, how are you doing? Uh, hey Douglas,
2: yeah, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, very, uh, very happy to be here.
1: Fantastic, fantastic. And as I said in the intro, this one for me is a long time coming. I've been following you on LinkedIn, and every time, and right off the bat, let's, let's do a confession. You started, I think 11, 11 days ago, a, a, um, a commitment. And you've done a public affirmation that you're going to put out content for 20 days. You're right. And I saw that and I thought, okay, wow. I've been kind of slacking. <laughs> <And> I, I, <laughs> it's time to it up, mate. I've been slacking. So when, when I see your post on the feed, Straight away, I run like a rabbit, I go. I got post something. If <laughs> if it means I'm walking somewhere, I have to post. So just to keep up, and this this is what we need in life is trendsetters, trendsetters, pacemakers, people that you know are going to help hold you to account. And I must say, Rachel, you've held me to account. I've I've not lapsed at all. I've, for 11 days straight, I've posted content. And typically, I do two or three times a week. But this time, I've been consistently doing that. So, Rachel, tell me a bit about your journey. Like, how did you get into the executive space that you're in?
2: So, how did I get in? I guess I, um, I came out of school and... I I knew, Douglas, that going to uni, I would get pissed and not get a degree. So I knew that that wasn't a a particularly good plan. So I went straight into work. Um, But I have only ever worked as an interim for organizations. I started out with the big five. So I had time with um, KPMG, PwC, and Accenture uh, in my early 20s. Um, And then I kind of moved into a world of uh, interim management, lots of turnaround stuff, lots of transformation uh, and across um, public and private sector and had the pleasure of working abroad a fair bit. So uh, I guess you can deduce from that um, some level of commitment issue in way of uh, staying anywhere for any period of time. But um, I'm... Uh, I'm always excited about kind of getting the party started, bringing the energy, driving the change. But uh, at the point it becomes business as usual, that gig is is almost certainly somebody else's.
1: Sure, sure. Excellent. And do, did you find that that outlook on life helps you not only avoid some of the stale processes that we see in businesses, like the, the underlining culture of organisation um, when you are, when they know of when they know that you're not going to stay there for a long time you don't get involved in the politics as much
2: well i certainly try not to get involved in the politics um i i mean the nature of some of the roles i've had you don't have any choice but for me i'm a delivery girl so i'm particularly interested in getting the job done and i'm i'm really not interested in the you know we've tried this before this hasn't worked. Um, why are we doing that again? You know, for me it's about, you know, let's really um galvanize the troops, um, paint a picture of, of the art of the possible and then make it happen.
1: Excellent, excellent. And and round right round right queue So this this get getting people on the journey in digital transformation across the NHS is a real, real challenge. And being able to paint a picture for people who are not in the best state of mind they're under the pressure for to, to deliver um care to to their patients um how do you go about doing it? what sort of ways do you um, help people visualize you know there is a better way of actually working?
2: So I think the key bit around this is, To create a value proposition of what you're actually going to do. And whether that's a value or a visual prop, when I was leading Empower the Person for the NHS, which was the program that ultimately bought NHS app, NHS.uk, and Wi Fi into hospitals, uh, we had to build out a visual proposition that said we're moving from NHS choices to. A repository of content nhs.uk that's written for age eight, which is the UK standard for reading um, and building out live transactional services. So, what we did is we actually mocked up what we thought it was going to look like. And it's a real balance in Act Douglas because mm. people inherently look at it and think that that is exactly what's going to show up. And, you know, the reality is we're We had a big program of work looking at the user research, at the service design. So we didn't know it was going to exactly look like that. But we had to paint a picture to get buy-in across staff, across clinicians, across uh, patients. Um, And I think as um, certainly as patients um, and users started to see a value creation, then they bought in. But let's face it, people are... People are people, um, and mm. people are lazy, um, and and they are not going to go and do something unless there's a value creation for them, um, and and that was um, that that was the you know that was the whole point of it. You know, give give you access to your own medical records, give you the ability to um, you know request repeat prescriptions, give you the ability. Um, to uh, donate your data to the NHS and the quid pro quo is you can get these things electronically and you can walk around with a repository of all of your medical information so that was the value proposition um Of course overnight that didn't happen it was a it was a big job it was a lot of people and it was hard graft
1: yeah I, I can imagine that and if we take back the the listeners to a place where medical records were just becoming digitized, you know, we've had, you know, since healthcare began, paper-based records. So it was a fundamental change transformation program of which there were, there were multiple facets and you were part of that. So um, in, in in our process, when you're selling that picture um, to convince, you know, they always talk about over hearts and minds and all that kind of stuff. What sort of techniques did you do you employ to get that message across?
2: I um, what you see is what you get. So I'm very open and I'm very honest and I'm very authentic in that. Um, so it, it's very much, you know, explaining it is going to be a serious amount of work. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the reality is we're kind of, we're in this together. I'm not asking people to do anything I wouldn't do myself. Um, but the, you know, the end game here is that we can make a fundamental difference. I'm not sure that there has been, you know, there's always talk about transformation in government and healthcare, but I'm not sure that there is, Truly innovative transformation on the scale that the NHS app, NHS.uk, is, that happens very few, you know, very few times. So I think, you know, by really being able to articulate to the team that we're on the precipice of doing something pretty monumental, you know, people are excited about that. Um, And uh, I guess um, being able to paint that picture. and explain that we weren't going to try and do this the same way they tried to deliver stuff before. You know, we we kind of forced the hand of the NHS to create an environment in Victoria, it was, for... Um Digital staff to co-locate and to work together um, and move away from you know old school Gantt charts and move to a very agile way of working. we had a you know we user research lab in the building where we brought patients in um, it was very much bringing it all the way up to speed in way of um, how in, in in ways of working, and and that mm. again was exciting, um, because we weren't asking digital professionals to come in and work in the NHS in a kind of dry and staid environment. It was cutting edge, um, and so there was a it was an easier sell. And cutting edge is not synonymous with the NHS, mate. As he as you know, mm.
1: Mm. absolutely, absolutely. However, within um, NHS stereotypical digital transformation programs. Words such as excitement, you know, authenticity, um, you know, this a uh, real value-driven using natural language is not was not the norm. Certainly, in the earlier days, you know, saying authenticity, putting yourself out there was like wow. Because I, I worked with quite a few digital transformation agents over my time, and they they came from the business change man- management school of thought. And you could tell the their the thought processes, thought processes were more aligned to conveyor belt manufacturing, you know, task orientated. This needs to be done. Then you come across with this really refreshing, revolutionary way of putting yourself out there. Like, look at look at me. I'm doing it. I'm with you. I'm part of the team. Let's roll. Um, that must have been a, still a shock to the this, the executive suite when they see that.
2: I think it was a massive. It was a massive shock to them, um, and and you know we weren't entirely popular the whole time. You know, I, I sort of rolled in with my SRO Juliet Bauer, and and we disbanded 10 program boards that made up that program of work and we moved to one and we got rid of over 100 people that were sitting on boards um and you know we were serially unpopular at that time but mm. the reality was a lot of that was a talking shop Douglas it wasn't adding any value and we moved to a um a monthly meeting where we were actually showing uh uh empower the person board members what we were building we were doing a show and tell now I know this sounds like pointing out the bleeding obvious but that had not happened um so you know they'd been signing off um business cases they had been signing off checks for various things but they hadn't actually seen what they were investing in so we we, we turned it on its head uh, and um and I think that then bought us some you know some 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 buy-in uh, from the top of the shop as well
1: excellent excellent so you're, you're working across both both, done, both, both parameters, top, bottom as well, to get that um, broad consensus and move forward. How much of of your previous non-NHS background did you feed into? And are you continue to feed into the work that you're doing, helping entrepreneurs, <laughs> helping businesses get, the, get established? And because there's something here I, I find really profound, and I'm seeing it more and more with the advent of AI take a look at companies and they're saying, look, with this technology, ChatGBT, you can scale up very quickly. You can add more value potentially, and you can start to get rid of processes that you don't need, i.e. people, because you've got more capabilities your, yourself. Yeah. You know, Having that ability yourself um, in terms of how you view a company structure how are you leveraging this thing? How are you seeing this thing all play out in the support you're giving companies?
2: So that's a great question. I'm going to answer that two ways. Um, the businesses that I love the most are people-orientated businesses. And what I mean by that is... Um, I think I like a bit of chaos, Douglas. Um, I like people. Um, they're unique. They're individual. And um, it's services businesses, professional services businesses that I uh, am wanting to, to to work with. And that's the, the bulk of my experience. Um so, in answering your question two ways, one, um, I saw a lot of entrepreneurial and intrapreneurial skills in the NHS, a phenomenal amount. And I think because it's a breeding ground for a shed load of process and governance, you then inherently have people who want to move around that process and governance in a unique way, um, which for me, I, I don't say that as a negative, say that as a serious positive. Um, yeah. You know, they, they that entrepreneurial thinking, let's speed this up. You know, this is a drainer. We can do it better. We can do it faster. So I've worked with loads of entrepreneurs. If I look even at my senior management team, so the uh, my directors, when I was at NHSD running Empower the Person, there was probably six or seven. I would say 80% have gone on to build their own business since that gig. So that, you know, that tells its own story, mate, and and they're wildly successful. Um, you know, certainly... One of them has sold his business. Uh, one has taken VC investment. Um, so, you know, every which way. Um, but answering the second part of your question around leveraging, you know, what we've got from a technology perspective at the minute with AI, chat GPT, there's so much that we can do at leveraging these tools. But I will always come back to the fact that, you um, it's people-based businesses that are of particular interest to me. Will it, these tools allow me to move faster? Yes, um, but there is still a, a, a real need for the individual involvement um, of people, and and that mm. I'm never going to get away from that. You know, I had this conversation with my brothers the other day, who both work in financial services, uh, both entrepreneurs, um, and. It, it won't replace for me it will enhance and we all better learn how to use these bloody tools um you know i guess my my thought process prevents me thinking it's going to replace because i just have a vision of you know sarah connor and terminator tumor. <laughs> um so that's maybe it's self-preservation <laughs> okay is everybody ready
0: atomic
1: that's my. your first mic drop in terminator sarah connor you cannot talk about ai without going to the the the, the foundation skynet skynet yeah that's correct or as my grandmother used to say the interweb (laughs) skynet skynet yes it's it's so so important i think this we are at the precipice uh, using your own uh, own own words there where you can what's it called x factor the human the human now has more capabilities as a single entity, but we're still very a communal based species. We need that human interaction to other human beings. So, how that plays out in terms of the innovation, the, the, the type of solutions that are available, you know, for, for so many years, we'll say the NHS has been ring fenced in terms of what, where we look for our solutions. And you, when you come with a broad spectrum of, of experience in outside sectors. What sort of tools do you think we can bring into the NHS that will really add that value? We know we've got the the, this, the traditional EPR scenario, the yep. traditional um, monolithic system or best of breed, but still there's still not that revolution, I would say when it comes to keying in patient data retrieving patient data that you find across different industries, such as banking does not reflect how you used to write a check. It's completely different experience.
2: So I am God, I've got a long answer to this one, Douglas. I'm I'm trying, I'm trying (laughs) to condense it in my head. Okay. Um, I don't think if we, let's talk EPR systems, first of all, um, I don't think the answer is epic and certain for all of the questions that are being asked in this space. Um, I'd say they're the 80-20 rule, um, and I would say that they probably are the master data source for a lot of hospital-based patient stuff. But I work as non-exec director for a digital cancer platform company, Careology. And, you know, what you don't have in an EPR is that deep domain knowledge um, of a condition. Uh, And so that's why I think that they will hit probably 80%. But you're going to have edge cases that require plugging some of these systems together to make it as powerful as it should be from a Mm -hmm. patient perspective. Um, And that's where interoperability comes in, which I have to say, this is where I come across as a bit of a geek loser. Um, This is probably one of my favorite subjects, because technically, I think interop actually has been nailed quite a while ago. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we've been pushing FIRE standards since I was sitting in the NHS. Um, So technically, I don't think that is so much of a challenge more it's the appetite to want to go and do it and if I was a vendor you know if I and, and I owned I use the term owned in inverted commas patient data would I want to open up and run the risk of loads of other systems coming in and interfacing I'd be wary and so I understand the reticence but the reality is you missing the bloody point this is patient data and it should be donated to the NHS and owned by the patient, in my personal opinion, and I think that's where we need to get to. In way of uh, okay, guys, everybody ready?
1: And that is where you get Atomic a big mic drop. This is what we've been championing on this platform for the longest period. I, I salute you on that one. And you, you said it best. You know, the companies, vendors have to be thinking more about the benefit. The true benefit to the to the patient opposed to their bottom line which typically and you know the challenges they might get from a competitor coming in you know plugging in pulling data and then adding value to that data sophisticating that data then ultimately taking over that um, regional vendors um lunch or whatever they yeah. the, or whatever way they want to term it I, I I'm with you one thousand percent um also just to explore that a bit a bit more when we take a look at the patient, and if we are good shepherds or good stewards of the patient, you know, if I was, if the patient moves or should do move around the globe and we're chasing the patient, say, no, make sure you put your data in our system, make sure you put your data in our system, you well, gets to a tipping point whereby the mobilization of the patient will dictate that your system cannot keep up. You know, if my auntie, my grandma moves from up north to down south, you know, the, the quality of care changes because the access to the complete record is is different. You know, the deep, the deep insights into her conditions are not really there. And also take a look at patient recorded data, which, you know, well, I've got my eye I, I watch on, but there's data on these devices that are far richer and more patient specific. What's held in this EPR system, but how then do we create that world where you know that is a more seamless, informative, you know, um experience for not only the clinician to to help support the care, but also the patient to be empowered, to be piloting their own recovery. <laughs>
2: I think that's a really I think that's a really good point um and i I think the reality is um that's what really starts to drive prevention uh because if people take responsibility and accountability, uh then of course you know they are wanting to be proactive about sharing that data. So it goes back to the point technically. It's absolutely possible, but this is about commercials. Let let's get down to it. This mm. is about commercials. This is about owning, you know, a, a piece of the pie. So I think that, and the, you know, the way that we started to address this from a GP perspective was by opening up the GP Connect contract and and allowing, you know, more suppliers on. So it wasn't a monopoly and wasn't dominated. But the reality today is. We have a load of data sitting on the NHS app. I mean, I myself—I was born in seventy-eight. I know I look younger, uh, <laughs> but I was born in—I was born in seventy-eight. I actually feel bloody older this morning. Um, and uh, but my my record on the app only goes back to eighty-two, probably because those four years were out and out paper and they haven't been transferred over. And so I have a shed load of data I walk around with every day, but I don't have everything. You know, I had. Um, uh, I've had a couple of dental surgeries uh, this year. I've had some procedures done to investigate some stuff. They're not sitting on there. And that's because primary and secondary data is not all being held or even meshed together in any mm. you know, uh, smart way. But from a patient perspective, and for Joe Average, here's the news – They think the NHS is one massive entity and they're not interested that it's 20,000 different organisations. Most people don't know what primary and secondary are unless they work in the system. they just want access to their data and i'll i'll just share douglas if you don't mind a, a personal story uh, my stepdaughter is in uh, kidney failure and waiting for a kidney transplant at the minute uh, and the easter friday um she got a call she's on the on the list and she there was a kidney they thought was going to be a good match um, it didn't transpire to be a good match. That's that's not actually the part of the story. Um, the point of the story, sorry, uh, it is part mm-hmm. of the story. But the what what happened was uh, Charlotte lives in New York. She's under um, a nephrologist in Leeds. She went to Leeds um, to wait for the kidney um, to to arrive, so they could mm. do the transplant but she'd been in at york before and even between york hospital and leeds they can't share data so they didn't know what charlotte had been she'd been admitted a couple of weeks before she'd had a high temperature had some you know investigations even between those two hospitals and we're talking less than an hour drive um they couldn't share the data, so you know I then have my well my ex wife saying to me, you know you work in the system why why can they not share the data? And this goes back to the point about these EPR systems and about you know a. a A patient, Joe Average, roaming around should have access to all this information. You know, are we really expecting people to print off Mm. letters and carry that around with them the whole time? The thing when you get a call up for a kidney is, you know, I don't know whether you know the process, but the the police do a ring around. They show up at the house. You have very limited time to get to the hospital to, you know, to go and have Mm. the transplant it's not the time to be running around the house trying to find paperwork. So mm. you know that's a that's a real life example Shocking. in the last couple of weeks where you're thinking mm. this is so incredibly basic and so frustrating um, that we haven't improved. And these are basics. You know, this is mm. not you know as, as transformational as no longer using a check. Your example in banking, but but it is it's basic, and we should be able to do better
1: absolutely i I think we started off um and, and thank you for sharing that and, and i do i do wish the best uh, it's very difficult and I really thank you for your op- openness and frankness on on that story. We could all learn lessons and it does paint that picture tells of where are we now what is actually happening on 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 the ground. I think Covid has made us all expert health consumers <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. great uh, yeah so we we our uh, expectations of the NHS and any health provider has increased, but that's not been matched by what is available on the ground, and that friction um, needs to be smoothed out by, um, by by again by a resetting, as it were. Where are we now? Do we do we think because COVID, Brexit, let's let's put them both out there, NHS. You know, are we thinking outward, outwardly as a nation should be in the post-Brexit, post-COVID environment? Are we looking at solutions that are locally definable and available, like I, I tech companies that are British? You know, w- w- how do you see this playing out in the next, like, we say, yeah, because AI is changing everything at a rapid pace. So no five-year projections. What's happening now?
2: So um, I, I, I really like your point about uh, COVID making us all kind of experts in consuming, um, and and different models of care arrived during COVID, um, and and I I think that's a positive. You know, we saw adoption of telehealth, of virtual care, of remote care, in a way that you know I'm not sure we would have ever seen because it was very slow on the uptake um, prior to, to COVID. But it's not one size fits all. You know, it's not, I can't phone my GP and get an appointment. I can, because it's on the phone for an hour and then I'll get the, they'll call you back at some point. Well, the problem is, um, I spend most of my life in a meeting or on a call. So I then miss that call. Um, they're probably frustrated thinking she hasn't answered. I'm thinking what am I supposed to be doing, taking a day off, waiting for a frigging phone call. Um, it's not good enough. Uh, and, you know, what I then do, Personally, what I end up doing is when I need to see a GP, I will then go and pay to see one privately. But you know, lucky me, I can afford to do that. I still don't think that's right. So, um, I think we've seen an adoption of um, of of varying different uh, technologies, but. If we go back, Douglas, to the start of COVID, I don't mm. think I've seen any improvement on some of these video platforms during that period of time. Um, you know, I mean, I have a preference. i probably prefer Zoom, mainly because it's got that little feature that makes you look a little bit better. But uh, anyway, that's, that's <laughs> by the bye. if you've had a tired night. We all need a bit of help, mate. But, yeah, um, but, yeah. <laughs> Where has the improvement been, <coughs> or even that's on basic video platforms during that period of time? That's been limited. Um, so to answer your question, I think, um, I think we really need to fix some of the absolute basics. Um, before looking at some of the sexier technologies. And that's a heartbreaking statement for somebody that works in my industry and can see the real benefit of some of this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, it, I think we're well past saying we're losing the audience. You know, I think that there is huge frustration with the NHS, misdirected. Um, personally, I think that should, frustration should be government from a funding perspective, but we won't go off on a political rant that we'll never get back. Um, But I do think that we've got, um, you know, the advent of things like chat GPT of of AI um, and and even, you know, machine learning. Machine learning at best, I think, rather than AI for for plenty of these use cases. Uh, But it's powerful. It's incredibly powerful, this stuff that's Mm -hmm. coming down the road. Um, And we do need to be able to leverage it. And the NHS is about caring for sick people, um, rather than prevention
0: okay so guys everybody ready might um,
1: you know, we'll <laughs> drop there might drop we need to reset going from a a sickness based care model to a preventative recovery based model is where we're looking for so no I salute you for that one might drop <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, but I, I think that there is a real need to think, think about the NHS as the, you know, the care part of the service, and, and how do we plug into this innovation? We shouldn't expect it's all going to be, you know, designed within the system. We need to leverage some of this stuff um, outside, whether it's SMEs, whatever it is. We need to work together and do that, you know, during COVID. We saw the rule book got chucked out the window um, and we moved at breakneck speed on stuff. My previous business, we we designed and built the home testing service for COVID-19. We put it live in eight days. Um, and wow. you know, that that is mind blowing in in way of the speed at which you'd normally build these services. Three months later, we dispatched a million test kits out across the UK. Um, And and, and the reality is these things can happen. Now, okay, we set fire to the rule book. I get that because we had no choice, but we shouldn't accept moving back to an incredibly slow way of working either. So there's got to be some sort of halfway house on innovation and moving things forward without it costing the earth, breaching bloody procurement rules. Do you know what I mean? There's got to be mm. a, a a blend.
1: <laughs> I, I like that. That was slightly cryptid. I, I, got, I got what you were saying there. There has to there has to be a blend because breaking the procurement rules, we know that that, that happens. Um, technology, what we do know, is technology's got cheaper. Way cheaper. Way cheaper, all right. But the deployments of some of this technology has gone exponentially higher. You know, I I, I still can't fathom how (laughs) tech right now is being at its cheapest and continues to go down. But some of the deployments I'm reading about across the NHS is not only breaking um, the trust's, and also stopping those trusts from truly innovating and bringing the best talent because they can't afford to pay those stuff, the money to come there. They cannot afford to upgrade their estates. But they will say, hey, look, got a shiny piece of tech. It shouldn't cost the arm and the leg. It shouldn't, you shouldn't be talking about the, the north of 20 million pounds for a computer system. You're not yes. sending something to orbit. You're not doing that. It's not complicated. <laughs> it's not that complicated, so
2: I'd like to send some of those uh, suppliers to orbit charging the, <laughs> charging the system that
1: can, can, can you imagine that so this whole thing about in a post brexit because Brexit is playing a big part of what's happening now as well Massive. so so the companies that you are supporting, both within the NHS and outside the NHS, do they have that global outlook? in terms of are they still looking for solutions that are very UK specific?
2: Uh, no, I think the market's shifting. Um, I think that there was a lot of money poured in from investment into health um, by VCs, by private equity. I think, to be honest, with half-baked idea, money was being thrown out windows 12, 18 months ago. Um, and I think all of that has now tightened up, you know, global economic situation um, and and what you therefore see is a reduction of people investing in this space um and it starts to have a knock on effect in way of um you know what what's available, who's doing what where, and how is it how is it kind of happening um so I think um I think the tightening up there is is definitely causing a a challenge. Um but I think some of this is the thinking and it seems to be quite cyclical. So when I first came into government, we're going back ten years ago now, maybe longer, but you know, we were moving towards a world of open source. We are moving away from proprietary, moving away mm. from big SIs, getting deals. Um and it feels like we're going back. Um, we're, we're going for a different wave at the minute where, you know, the answer is an SI, not an SME, which has not been mm-hmm. the agenda for a period. Um and, and the difficulty there is the, the cost, not just the software, but the implementation, the on cost to make all this stuff happen. Now, the one caveat I will say, Douglas, is it is not easy implementing software in the NHS because people are doing five different jobs. Um, they are burnt out and some. They are more than change fatigue um but so so, and they you know i think probably more complexity implementing in the nhs than other sectors for those reasons um but the reality is um without moving some of this stuff forward we stand still and people Mm. will continue to be doing the same things in five ten years time and and you know back to the example of banking that's not acceptable when the world is moving this fast
1: Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And um I want to just divert slightly away from the NHS specific stuff, because as, as you right said, you could go on forever trying to rectify the did. problems. Yeah, yeah, I want to talk about how you help companies, and typically, what are the the main pitfalls that you see company directors making with their companies, and how can they avoid some of these pitfalls?
2: So I, I I've spent the last twelve months working with probably eighty different entrepreneurs across various sectors. Um, majority in healthcare. um, And what I have built, I've built a program that helps uh, founders and entrepreneurs um, to maximize the value of their business prior to sale. And if I talk about the mistakes that I see, I think mistake number one that I see is um, not having a clearly articulated sell pack, which really lays out, you know, where the business has come from and what the opportunity is for a potential buyer. Um, and, And what by definition happens is lots of founder owners are knee deep in the business, head down, you know, selling some deals, helping deliver. We're all in the mix. We're probably not fulfilling the CEO role day in, day out. From personal example at Different, I was in lots of different areas. And the difficulty then is you're not clear. The mistake is that you're not clear on what the value of the business is and what the market's doing, the market conditions. So certainly um, having a clear sell pack um, and Understanding the value of your business, um, I think, is is mistake number one. Uh, in way of uh, someone comes knocking and you kind of take the first offer, um, I think that's a that's a big big mistake.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you find a lot of directors or owners um, undervalue or, or go to the opposite extreme and overvalue their business, but not based upon um, up to date research?
2: I, I think, but on the latter point, Douglas, I think some of it is absolute fantasy island. I don't even think it's, it's you know, anything like research. It's, it's the, you know, you've heard about a multiplier. You think you're this sort of business, mm-hmm. um, but the reality is, You know, you could be doing a serious number um, in way of revenue. But if you haven't got the processes in place, if it's not repeatable businesses, if you're predicated on the superhero mentality of somebody, you know, jumping in and doing deals and working a 16 hour day, you know, that that stuff is really hard to value Mm -hmm. because any buyer almost has to keep exactly the same components in place. And that's not scalable. And that is what these buyers are looking for.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely. Just to to build with you that one, I've supported some companies as well, um, SMEs and um, startups. And I always ask them, you know, what roles are you doing? And they give me a long raft. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You know, and I said, OK, fine. draw out an organizational chart of all the roles that your company has to fulfill, not that it actually has in place, but has to fulfill it for, for it to meet a certain value. So, they go through all, all the roles from COO, um, marketing, sales executive, all of those roles are done. And then I say, write down all the roles that you are actually doing yourself. And typically, they tick, um, tick their name against most of these roles. Then I ask them, okay, how are you going to fire yourself, sack yourself from some of these jobs? And that's when they get stuck. They don't know how to. And it goes back to your point about processes. So when, you you know, when you do the USP, your value proposition, all of those things, you should have another, your Bible should be your list of processes. Like if you go to McDonald's and you go to their secret vault, not only you find the ingredients for their cheeseburgers, which are epic, but I take out the cheese for some reason, Um, but you find their processes to flip those burgers, to do the fries, and that is the that is where the value comes in because you can Absolutely. as you said you can repeat the process so how many businesses actually have a, a that bible that they can show here's a process end to end to do something so that as you said earlier about um the reading age that we have to put out content is typically for 8 year old that's the reading where is that manual in every business for all the processes you know before we even get to the point of saying that now is worth this amount of money where where is that and how do they produce that
2: and that's part of, of certainly what what I do with, with companies on the first module of this program. So it looks at, um, you know, really understanding the key assets that make up your business, building out a data room, uh, and then building out a, you know, building out a sell pack that looks at, you know, looks at competition, but also is honest, uh, Douglas, and talks about weaknesses you've got in your company. Um, now, that may seem totally the polar opposite of what you'd expect a potential, seller of a business to do. But here's the news. If you're not open and honest about that stuff, as you go through due diligence and head to terms, it's going to bite you in the ass anyway. Uh, so why not get up front? Uh, and, and then you know you stand a much better chance of actually attracting a buyer who knows what they're on the hook for. And they're not expecting people to be bloody experts in every conceivable area. So uh, that that's something I... Um, I'm going to be encouraging businesses to to be very upfront about. Um, and it's, you know, a, a, a different example. But one of the module three looks at exit strategy. And within mm. exit strategy, um, I'm asking some really pointed questions of the founders and the owners about what do they really want to do when they sell the business? You know, do they want to chill out on a yacht and do nothing for the rest of their life. If they do, happy days. Let's
1: make that I'm happen. guilty of all counts. <laughs> I told you this earlier. i got this vision of being on a yacht and having my white suit on, you know, and singing Rio, Duran Duran, you know.
2: Mate, you yeah. to be rocking those those glasses with <laughs> that white suit. That's all I
1: can say. <laughs> Miami Vice. <laughs>
2: It's funny because for for me, um, I I knew I wasn't gonna be somebody who could sell the business and go off and, you know, sort of chill out on the beach for twelve months. That was gonna freak me out. Um and, and but it's important because if you're a CEO who doesn't want to do that, um you, you, you're you going to need to put a managing director in place so you're freed up to go and do what you fancy for the next gig. Um, and it's starting to think about and tease these out. You know, another example is um, it was incredibly important to me that the business that bought my company – the culture was aligned to mine. I didn't want my staff going to work somewhere, but I didn't feel the culture was aligned. Uh, and, mm-hmm.
1: um, Interesting. Great point.
2: Yeah, and and you know, yeah. that, that so I actually spent a lot of time using a technique, Woodley Mapping, to map the culture of these organisations. And again, that's something we look at in Module 3, because the amount of uh, owners that I've spoken to, this is super important to them. You know, their business is like family, uh, and everybody's very tightly knit and, and the one bit that's holding them back about selling the business is they're so nervous about where their staff are off to.
1: Wow. That, that's, that's a point I've never really reflected on. It's a, it's a great, it's a great point. It's a, it's a great point. It's this the um, continuation of your life, really, you know, and your business it has been your life for a period of time. Then yeah, visualizing it, with the same way you visualize the creation to the post it's so, so important. Um, Wow. Wow. Do you have any tips for um, helping business owners deal with it? For me, there there is a fear around going for VC. um, And how do they reconcile that fear? You know,
2: Yeah, I think it's understanding what you've got. It's asking Mm. yourself some pointy questions about where are you going um, and what do you personally really want. BC may well be the answer. But I think until you've built out a data room, you've built the cell pack, you know, you've know, you got a, a key list of, of the processes and the governance on how your business operates. You really understand the services that you're selling. And you know, the reality is plenty of us should be retiring some of the services because here's the news, no one's freaking buying them. Um, and we should perhaps be looking at, do we pivot some of the stuff that we're doing? But when you've answered some of these fundamental questions, Um, I think you know it then allows you and you've got a you know an idea of what the true valuation of the business is it it actually allows you to make some decisions about you know if you still got that grit and energy in you to drive it to the next level if you have um, you know why not take some VC money in but you know the reality is they are going to own your ROS um so Mm. that's it now everyone you know they they say it much more politely than that douglas but here's the news no one rolls in with a shed load of dough and you don't retain the cash and the bloody responsibility the entire time so if you're taking a big chunk of cash off the table you've got yourself a boss and that's something you've got to get your head around and i had to get my head around it when i sold different you know i and i really really struggled with that for a period, but you know, I absolutely accepted it. Did I like having a boss? No, I did not. Um, is that something that I will do again? Almost certainly not. But but again, you know, it goes back to one of the key motivators for building this program is um, I wished I'd had access to something like this when I was going through the sale of different, because it would have helped me with some of my thinking would have been that kind of sounding board. But also, I think it would have given me a bit more understanding um, of, of the process and, you know, how it was going to play out. And a lot of the time we just need that. We need that extra reassurance. We need somebody who's been there, seen it, done it, um, even for a for a sounding board.
1: Absolutely. And there's something unique about the, your approach as well, which is very direct, open, transparent. You, you you give the medicine as it's supposed to be. You don't add a sweetener to it. And I think a lot of people should should gravitate to that honesty, because if you try and put fluff in your, in your documentation, as you said, it will reveal itself somewhere down, down the line. So I couldn't have this conversation and I'm very conscious of time and I could talk to you all day. So I cannot talk to you without exploring some of the, the companies that are being formed and from a, from a Bain background, to a minority background, to the LBGTQ background. You know, without that, no. How can we encourage greater diversity in startups? Because I I, I sincerely believe that some of the problems that me and you have been articulating and going back and forth on are coming because these companies fundamentally are blinkered.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, I um, it's it's interesting. So even on launching this program, launched it eleven days ago. Twenty percent of the people applying are women; eighty percent are men. Um, so just you know, a flavour of uh, mm-hmm. diversity or lack of, and I guess I'll use this opportunity for a shout out to women out there um, who are looking to come and, you know, sell their business at some point, for God's sake, supply, because I'm really desperate to, to balance the books. And that goes the same across all aspects of diversity. Um, you know, LGBTQ+, neurodiversity, race, you know, everything. I think the reality is and the reason that When I was building services, NHS, government, we had multidisciplinary teams and we had user research was we were building services for the public. We had to represent every conceivable area and that is the same with businesses, but we have a really defined process when we're designing and building services to make sure we capture Right across the piece, every aspect of diversity. We don't have that in business. What we have is ESG targets if we're a listed company and we're targeting, you know, uh, B Corp or something like that, but there is no obligation for a limited company to do it. I think that's a crying shame. Um, But if we forget the legality side, um, the diversity of opinion, diversity of thought, and different approach that different people bring count me in. I mean, all day, every day. It's, it's just so much more wide and varied than it's the same reason I wouldn't go and hire a load of little Rachels, other than the fact they'd be a massive pain in the arse. Um, <laughs> you know, I want a wide variety of, of thought and opinion.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, like I said, Rachel, you, you brought the fire today. Um, I'm I'm truly, truly inspired, and I, and I know that my listeners, listeners from My Drop Club, there's so many nuggets of, of of wisdom there. You know, reach out to Rachel. I will leave the last um segment just for you, Rachel. Any call to action? I know you you plugged you plugged um the course, but anything else that you want to share with the audience? Um, before we fade to black
2: so I guess um, my my call to action if you are a founder of a professional services business, so think consultancy, recruitment company, engineering, design, social media, PR, and you're doing 2 to 20 million in way of turnover, and in a minimum of two years plus, you are wanting to sell your business, then drop me a DM that says eight-figure exit, and I'll be in touch. Um, I'm onboarding the first cohort of people through the program in about a week and a half time. Uh, so, yeah, that's my final plug, Douglas, of the day.
1: Probably
2: isn't, oh, but final plug on this.
1: Oh, fantastic, fantastic, Rachel! Again, once again, thank you very much for coming to the Mic Drop Club. Um, yeah, it was, like I said, it was truly inspiring. And uh, hopefully we could do another session. The, co- the subject matter was very broad, um, sweeping. I think it's, a, it's a good time to get a footing and, you know, introduce you to, to the, to the listeners and, you know, the great value that you're bringing. And it's rare that I find, um, an entrepreneur that's giving back in the way that you're giving back in a way that's candid and honest. And, um, yeah, you're giving the message. As how it's supposed to be delivered. <laughs> so, Rachel, have a fantastic morning.
2: And Thank week. you very much, Douglas. Much appreciated. And you too.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out micdropclub.com and get the show notes and useful links. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't just live life. Make life boom.